Welcome to our fourth episode of the Such Nerds podcast. I am Jason out of Hartford, Connecticut, and I am ruling this episode with the force of an Imperial Navy vessel. Hi, this is Peter. I'm calling from Long Island, New York, and I am plotting the death of the king. I am Russ from Montclair, New Jersey, and I am powered by a microatomic engine. He sure is. This week, Russell, Peter, and I will dive into The Mayors, which is part three of The Foundation by Isaac Asimov. But before we do that, I would like to address a few housekeeping items. Firstly, you can always reach us on our website, www.suchnerds.com, and listen to us at any time on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Another item of interest that I would like to share with my co-hosts, um, I am personally responsible for monitoring our metrics of the podcast, and I'm proud to say that as of this recording, we have been downloaded more than 50 times, boys. Wow! That's what I'm talking about. Uh, we've been on for a few weeks, and recently, the past week, I should say, has uh, has been more than half of our downloads. Wow! That's what I'm talking about. So I think that's a good sign. We're building some momentum, and we look forward to uh, continuing to promote our podcast into the future and keep the keep the dream alive. Wow! That's what I'm talking about. So I would like to thank roughly our 17 listeners right about now. <laughs> Give or take, I'm sure. Yeah. Our so, half listeners, too. Yes, yes. Those who, you know, listen five minutes in or just get past that wicked cool intro and then uh, have to listen to our voices and drop. But uh, we, we appreciate all of you. I would also like to offer a special thanks to one individual in particular, uh, Joseph, who was our first follower of the first episode, uh, very soon after we posted it. Thank you for the support, and we would like to congratulate you on that important poll position as our number one follower. Thank you again. And Jay, what, what does Joseph get for being our very first follower? In addition to my personal thanks on this episode, every time we post a new podcast, he will be able to download and listen to that new episode. Oh, that sounds priceless. And free of charge, he gets a lock of my hair, even though we've never met. <laughs> we'll figure out something. We'll, uh, I'll, I'll reach out to Joe. We'll hook him up. Can we shout out to anybody, or is that not something we get to do? Is that only Jason gets a shout out to people? Oh, you guys have some shout outs? Let it rip. <laughs> yeah, uh, I just wanted to shout out to my, my niece, Lila. It's her birthday today. Wow. Happy birthday, Lila. That's sweet. She's got to be at least number two or number three follower of our podcast to deserve a, a happy birthday wish on our podcast. Oh, I, I, yeah, I can guarantee she's never listened to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, she got to the first podcast and she was like, oh, my God, what is this? <laughs> this is terrible. I don't care if he is family. All right. Well, maybe uh, someday in her future, um, if, you know, we're still sustaining the uh, the hosting of this podcast by then uh she'll eventually hear it and maybe it'll happen to be her birthday that day when she listens so perfect nice job peter russ did you have i think you said you had something um you were keeping an eye on incoming from our fan base it looks like we've got a question here for jason um and it appears that this person so so this message is from can't get enough helper hamburger and that's quite a name 
can't get enough isn't, helper. Isn't it hamburger helper? <laughs> Jay, I'm just reading what the fans write. Okay. okay. All right. Just the messenger. Just They're the messenger. Cool. So the message reads, I'm so glad I found this. I've been waiting to read Foundation for a long time and have no one to read it with. You guys might be my only friend. Here's the question. Question, Jason, what in great space is a neophyte? Can Jason explain his fancy words? I'm not a nerd myself, just nerd adjacent. <laughs> I, I have to say, Jay, this this seems like quite the complex question. I hope it you is, can unpack all of it. That is hard to unpack all that. Yeah, but you know what? I uh, you know I want this person, whoever they are, to know that um, even though we're reading the Foundation at a distance, you know we we can get through this together, and we will get through this together. You know, I think to do it justice, I should probably refer to an official definition to make sure that, first of all, that I'm using the word properly, um, but second of all, to not make sure I don't mislead based on my own, you know, interpretation of what, what the word means. You know, I, I have to commend this listener uh, for writing in and, you know, challenging us because it makes us be responsible for the words that we say, and it also brings education to more people. Not just a great listener, a great citizen, a noble human being. So what was the word? Just, uh, was it neophile? Isn't that like someone who loves new stuff or the matrix? A neophyte is a neophyte. The, uh, yeah. I don't know the word, the word in question. Actually, I, yeah, I didn't have a chance to uh, take a wild, wild stab at the definition. Let's, let's hear what it is, Jay. It, it is a person who is new to a subject, skill or belief. So maybe you could just say an amateur next time. An amateur. Yeah. That's a good synonym. But you could say, like, we are three neophytes to the mm -hmm. podcasting world. I mean, it obviously, it is our fourth podcast, so we are no longer neophytes. We are uh, pro-ams. Budding experts. Right now. Budding experts, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah for yeah. sure. Okay, so can't get enough helper. Hamburger, thank you for your question. Okay, question number two. And I would just like to uh, preface all of these, these questions with enunciations and pronunciations that I am currently with a uh, oral handicap as I have a retainer in my mouth. I also have to try to pronounce these words. So if it sounds even worse than what the question is, I apologize, but my, uh, my teeth are far more important than your questions. So don't take that to heart. <laughs> how you really feel it's i love you guys like pull out that retainer for like you know our 30 on, minutes. let's see if we can get a sound bite of me clack it on huh? there it is. oh there, gross. there we go yeah. did we that get a good nasty. one nasty so yeah. i'm yeah i'm free now but so I this just is want what russ to, really sounds like i want everybody to know that my one tooth is regressing back and that i will suffer severe tmj tonight because of all of you so you're welcome and okay uh, let's, let's, let's show get, that it Peter is showing his own dental device. Oh, Peter. There it is. now put in, wow. and it does not affect my speech at all because I paid for the good dental work. <laughs> so so you think, Peter. So you think. Peter so just I, put in, like, I think like, it's pretty clear <laughs> that I'm well understood. 
Peter, Peter just put in like a nice Invisalign clear tray, as they're called. I have what uh, dentists and orthodontists have been using since like the late 1970s, which is just a nice pink gob and metal wire um, to really bring me back to my roots. And, you know, I, I think we can appreciate those those days in the 90s when everyone had those fresh wire retainers after getting their braces off. All right, so let's get this this last message out of the way so we yeah, can get fine. we can get now Peter. It's all about me anyway. I, I, I want to let you know that this is not directly towards you, but I feel like you are the person who this should be guided. Uh, you're for. probably an inspiration. Yeah. I think is what Russ is trying. to you say. You are definitely the foundation of this questions foundation. Is it directed towards the handsomest host? Because it's I'm directed towards such that. nerds. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So, I guess that would also apply to me. Yeah. So let's see. It says message. Um, the name of this is splepping and pronundication. And the, mes- <laughs> the, the message reads such nerds. Can you please nerd out a little bit more on your pronunciation of the names, places, and vocabulary words in general during your podcast? That would be great. Thank you. That's not really a question, is it? And it's signed, it's signed Fromo, F-R-M-O, comma, slepping and renunciation, exclamation point. Well, I'll be sure to put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. I feel like this has something to do with your encyclopedist enunciation or pronunciation. I mean, they're clearly, it's clearly encyclopedists, right? It's a combination of cycle, as in bicycling, and pedestrian. Yeah, but I, I have a feeling that, uh, you know, this is just a feeling. So I don't, I, I can't state it as fact, but I'm just, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to lay it out there for you. There have been other moments, Peter. Like, for example, um, I could empathize with this um, with this fan writing in to ask us to be a little bit more careful, uh, because of, you know, I have to edit our episodes and it was painful to, uh, to listen to the hot rod, Roddy, Rodney, Roderick, Rodinick, whatever, how many different pronunciations we made of that poor guy's name, right? He's hot rod, baby. (laughs) He's hot rod. (laughs) And it may be hout, right? It may be hout. It doesn't have to be hot. I, you know, like it could be, we, we could just have totally blown it with that one. You know, I, I so. will remind everybody that this listener did not observe proper grammar or the Oxford comma. So I don't want to get too, <laughs> too deep into this. So I think let's take it as, you know, with a grain of salt, like, yes, Probably. we need to do a better, a better job, but at the same time, we're also human and they're just words. They don't own us, right? We, we can throw them around how we desire masters of our own destiny that's right that's right this guy sounds like an encyclopedist file <laughs> a, a neo a neophytic encyclopedist file i believe it's neophytic <laughs> <laughs> and uh i will also again because you know it catches me as i listen to it during our edit during the edit sessions does it catch um, you or does it cut you no, it, well, yeah, it catches me, and then it also, like, metaphorically cuts me as well sometimes. But this one, it, it was just a, it was a, it was a slip. 
that, uh, but I just want to bring it to your attention. And um, you referred to Isaac Asimov as Isimov. And, <laughs> you know, I think well, we could use that. We could, de- we could decide that we're going to call, we're going to shorten it like Brangelina, right? We're going we're gonna to call him Isimov. Let's do it. Isimov. Art is part creation, part discovery, right? And, and I think you, we, we, and, uh, yes, and part and, interpretation. And, well, sure. Absolutely. Exactly. I think it's half of all of those things, like, like about four halves in total. <laughs> so, all right, folks. So I think it's about time we dig right into the meat of today's discussion. And just to catch us up on the journey we've been through so far, we started off at the very beginning with Harry Selden managed to get a group of scientists and their families exiled from their lovely metropolis planet of Trantor, where the emperor lived, to a resourceless, uninhabited planet at the periphery of the galaxy called Terminus. About 50 years later, we meet Salver Harden in their first crisis with the Anacreonian kingdom, whose desire it is to annex Terminus and their land and their know-how. Fortunately, Salver Hardin is a sly and crafty statesman, and he manages to avert the crisis without conflict. At the very end of where we left off last week, he has just witnessed Harry Selden's holographic image, disclosing to everybody at the Foundation that their effort on the encyclopedia was a total sham. Simultaneously, Salver Hardin had planned a peaceful coup d'etat, or again, as Peter prefers to pronounce it, a coup d'etat, to gain control of the government of all of Terminus. That's where we ended up, and I think, Peter, I will turn it over to you to lead us through uh, the meat of the mayors. Okay. Well, this week we got through the first five chapters. Um, so, 30 years in the future. Hardin has established Terminus as a neutral scientific planet and a religious mecca through the development of a science-based religion and a priest caste trained on Terminus itself. Terminus is threatened by the discovery of a floating imperial battle cruiser by the kingdom of Anacreon, whose prince regent Weenus desires to take over the four other kingdoms and Terminus. Meanwhile, growing discontent within Terminus's council by a party known as the Actionists, who want to develop their own military and nuclear capabilities, threaten Hardin's policy of peaceful neutrality. After an unsuccessful attempt to remove Hardin from office by the actionist, on the eve of crisis, Hardin leaves for Anacreon, telling his trusted advisor, Lee, to announce another Harry Selden vault opening in the near future in an attempt to buy himself time while he handles the situation with Weenus. So thank you for that, Peter. And uh, so I think uh, there's a lot going on here. And I think one of the first things that we can kind of dig into is some of our speculation from last time, right? We agreed to kind of revisit where we were headed to to peace or to conflict. And uh, we are now witnessing a little bit of the mystery unravel as to what was obvious to Salver Hardin at the end of the um, Harry Selden holographic message. Um, 
he which was is obvious as all hell. Apparently to him, yeah, yeah. And he's capitalizing, of course, on their nuclear capability, uh, which was where we were kind of leaning, but in a very unique way that uh, was very unexpected for me to see. But very interesting, a very interesting uh, concept to, to explore. So, yeah, so um, do you want to kind of step us through a little bit uh, of some of the early actions and what we're seeing going on here? Well, I mean, Terminus used its one major resource, which is its knowledge base. And in doing so, essentially made a interconnected web of alliances with the other surrounding systems, right? And I, I believe there's four major powers in Terminus. Um, and at some point it kind of comes out that Anacreon is both an empire slash kingdom and a planet. So there's two, when they're talking about the kingdom of Anacreon, they might not necessarily be talking about the planet of Anacreon. Last time there was the threat of the invasion, which was going to happen the day after the vault opening. It happened. They occupied. And in Terminus leveraging these other kingdoms against Anacreon, managed to get them booted off the planet. Um, and they've been able to keep them off the planet by giving them nuclear power again. But they did it in a really interesting way that I didn't anticipate, um, which was using the the creation of a religion to act as its kind of enforcement tool of neutrality. Russ, you want to kind of walk us through what this new religion involves? Sure. From what I understand and how I read it, they've basically entrusted the workings of science to these priests and these these temples that exist near the power plants, or they call them like power boxes. And so they've entrusted instructing with them the, as they quote unquote called the empirical um, functioning of these power plants. And so they understand it to be as, as a scientific technique that they believe in with the higher power of, I don't believe they mention it in the first five chapters, but I think they go on right after the sixth and they, they refer to the galactic spirit. Wait, did you read ahead? I feel betrayed. (laughs) (laughs) You, I, I think, I, I don't know if it is or not, but anyway, it's, they're entrusting science into this, or they're, they're scripting science into a religious perception. Um, and so there are now high priests that are in charge of the nuclear power plants and are responsible for passing and rebuilding these, um, these new forms of, of power to new planets in the periphery or um, expanding them on Anacreon. Does that answer so, the question fully? So are they giving away this knowledge? Are they like teaching people how to like the theory behind the nuclear equipment? No. So it's only, it's only the priests that um, are being showed how to use the, the power generation equipment. So it's not like they're being shown how to design it or how to upgrade it or change it or modify it. They're strictly being taught on how to, use it to get power out and the power that they need. And that's so, it. So basically they know like one little piece of a very large pie and they can just, you know, operate their levers at their station. And then that's kind of it. From what I understand, I think that's it's shelled 
everything about scientific discovery is shelled within uh, this religious function of each priest has a specific role and that they only know that role and anything outside of that is either divine um, divine entrustment or some other priest's duty within that line of power generation. So do you guys know about the uh, cargo cults? No. Do you know what that no. is? Enlightened. No. So I, I may not get it 100% correct, so don't, uh, don't hold it against me, listeners. I, I don't want like, a barrage of fan mail about how wrong I was about cargo cults. <laughs> but, or, I mean, or feel free to let us know, you know, and steer us right, but uh, just don't, you know, just try not to be mean because I'm sensitive, you know. Um, he is. He'll cry. <laughs> I will. I do. I cry all the time. Um, so the the idea with cargo cults is is there was islands, you know, throughout the Pacific and uh, especially during the wartime, again, you know, the, the defining war of all modern knowledge, World War II. I mean, um, World War III. <laughs> so what would happen is these aircraft would come, you know, cargo aircraft, they'd be island hopping. They would bring stuff to the inhabitants of these kind of remote islands, tribal cultures, tribal peoples. And, you know, they'd give them clothes, they'd give them food. And, you know, the, the people saw this, these planes coming and, and bringing all this good stuff. And so, you know, of course, to operate that kind of a, a system, you need to have an airfield, you need to have kind of a radio antenna, a, a tower, a, a structure that the, you know, the air traffic controllers can communicate with the planes that are incoming or outgoing or whatever. And so what happened was at a certain point, these islands were not, you know, useful to the, to the people who had been visiting them for whatever purpose. And they left and they stopped visiting. They stopped bringing food. They stopped bringing stuff. They just abandoned the airfield. And then, you know, they came back some period of time later. And what they found were these tribal peoples were, had recreated the structures using bamboo and, and built these kind of, it's almost like Gilligan's Island, you know, looking radios with coconuts and stuff like this. They basically replicated the things that they saw, the geometries of what they saw, because they believed that that was what was, that environment was what was necessary to make these planes bring stuff to the island. That stuff had to be there for those planes to come. Wow. They didn't understand the science behind it. They didn't understand radio frequency. They didn't understand, you know, propulsion and fuel and, and all that good stuff. Um, but they understood that they saw the structure. And when the structure was there, the planes would come and bring stuff. And I feel like this whole idea, the way they've implemented this religion is very much along those lines. They've created these priests who have an understanding of the world that is like, they can see the geometries. They're like technicians of a certain function within these, um, you know, power plant uh, organizations. And they have very specific training that other people don't have uh, that allows them in combination with those other people doing their job to actually make the power plant function. Um, that was maybe a longer winded explanation than it deserved. But do you guys feel where I'm at with that? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's actually. Go ahead, Peter. No. Okay. 
I was just looking it up online, and dude, there's there's some crazy stuff out here. They've got like a radio um, dish that was recreated. It's just like incredible. Um, it looks like it's pretty crafty. Some people, yeah, it's they've got airplanes that they've built. They've got soldiers in old U.S. Army gear that have like sharpened um, bamboo poles, and they walk around and march around the uh, around the island. It's pretty wild. Yeah, so you know, I guess that kind of one of the problems I had was okay. Basically, this is eighty years after the collapse of the Galactic Empire, essentially, or the start of the fall. And, you know, we have this well-established religion, essentially, within 30 years of Harden taking over. And I guess just everyone else's beliefs just kind of got absorbed into this new cult, which, uh, again, you know, you got to suspend your disbelief. But right. It was one of those things. And I guess it's not that far off. You know, it's it's the these these cults were within 100 years of today. You know, 80 years ago or so. So, yeah. So it's how I kind of try to appreciate the power of this religion behind it. There's science, right? But to the tribal mind or the tribal eye, it appears as a miracle, right? The flow the you know, the, they talk about at one point, I don't know if it's in this section, but, um, and Peter, don't yell at me for reading ahead, please. But they talk about like creating these auras. Both of you read ahead? <laughs> they talk about creating these auras with, you know, using radiation to make the priests, you know, glow with uh, like a halo or an aura. And, Sterilize them with an aura. Yeah. And they provide power to the people. They're almost, it's almost like the, um, it's like, you know, the mob uh, approach of, right, taking care of the people. And that's how you retain your power over an area. You're kind of letting the people who are in official positions of power wield their power in the way that they believe they're wielding it. But in reality, you have the hearts and minds of the populace because you're the one offering them power and giving them something to believe in and et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's how I'm, it's an example of just to show how I've kind of processed this idea that you could turn science into a religion for these, you know, kind of backwards planets. And, you know, I struggled too, Peter, you mentioned the time frame of 30 years. I think that's one of the, you know, you're right, suspend our disbelief that it could happen in that period of time. Because if there's, you know, one thing that I would probably change about the story is the time frames would have to be a bit longer for this yeah, stuff longer. to really take hold and take root and really show a, a deviation from, you know, one state of culture to another state of culture that, that I don't think that you can fall into the dark ages over the course of a few decades. I think it takes a lot longer to get there. I think it's one way that Dune really struck me and I really had, you know, kind of a, impact on me is the time frame of dune is just thousands of years you know and uh it's uh it it hits you as believable almost the, the amount of change that can happen in that time period right and so those of you who just tuned in welcome back to our dune podcast <laughs> and uh <laughs> 
So no, I think you're, I think, I think you're yeah. right though, Jay. I think uh, that was one of the things that I also thought was, you know, you need to extend these timelines out a little bit. Um, you know, one of the things I talked about last time, and I remember cause I said it and I say the most important things on this podcast, um, is that the, they do find like these remnants of technology, right? And one of the big focal points is that they find basically a drifting Imperial star cruiser. That's a battleship and an Acreon, you know, claims it, but then they ultimately have to turn it over to terminus to fix it. And that becomes a point of contention because if they don't turn over the ship, which is this found technology, right? Then Anacreon has a quote unquote legitimate excuse to invade Terminus, which is what Weenus, which is the worst name ever. Like his parents obviously didn't do like the customary, how do I make fun of this name before choosing this name for my child? Like, you know, Bart, Dart, Cart. We can get there, Peter. Thank you. Talking of names, the one guy um, in the actionist community, whose name was Bort, and his primary uh, thing that he was upset about was that Itchy and Scratchy Land ran out of Bort license plates. Wow! That's what I'm talking about. We're kind of jumping around here, but that's okay, because the first section is really, there's like a lot of things going on. A lot of stuff is happening in parallel here, so it doesn't really have a particular order per se. It's really the the second half of the section, not that I would know because I haven't read ahead and we'll be discussing that next week, but um, it's really the second half of the mayors that things start to come together. But one of the things that is happening in parallel here is there's like a discussion about a hunting activity on Anacreon with this local creature that's, I guess, a native creature of the planet. And it's like a big deal to hunt these creatures because you need to fly on a device and chase after them. You guys didn't, neither of you guys, you know, latched onto that so far. Did that strike you guys as something kind of interesting that he threw in there? No. Like a <laughs> fox, like a fox hunt. It's like yeah, a I fox hunt. Like, was like, but oh, it's this like, is like space fox hunting. Yeah. That's, I was like, okay, I get it. And there could be a mysterious, Fox hunting accident, space fox hunting accident. Which is how the father of the yet-to-be-crowned king died, wasn't it? In a hunting accident? Didn't, didn't, it wasn't it explicitly alluded to in the previous chapter with the, the visit by the head priest also. Verisov or whatever his name is. Verisov, I think it is. Verisov, that, that might be it. Yeah, he straight up says, like, yeah, so the king, like, met a mysterious end with a needle gun mid-hunt, and uh, Weenus was somehow involved. Peter, I think I, I think I understand why you were afraid to touch on this one. Because the name's a little bit difficult <laughs> of this creature. Weenus? No. Weenus? The Nyak? The Nyak. Or is it Nyak? I believe it's Nyak. Nyak or Nyak. But either way, I think we're good. Like, we, we all know what we're talking about there, right? So, I, well, okay, so I'll talk about it then. If you guys didn't, it wasn't striking for you guys. I thought it was interesting. And to Russ's comments earlier on in at previous episodes, it's always like, you know, can't help but that ringing, you know, echo of 
topics that we touch on in this book and where else do we see them? And I think the idea of kind of a local, local to the planet creature, you know, obviously Dune has their very special local to the planet creature uh, on Arrakis, but the idea of having these kind of unique creatures interacting with humans or the other way around, I think it's a good, you know, aspect of the the sci-fi journey, right? It's challenges your kind of what you take for granted interacting with your environment here on earth and all the creatures that we know and love. And uh, I thought this Nyack was pretty, pretty cool. Like, I guess it puts up a pretty good, uh, a pretty good fight. And it uh, is a very elusive creature and really hard to pin down. And uh, it's like a big deal for Leopold, who's the up and coming to be crowned king of Anacreon that he, uh, you know, he's got all these kills under his belt and he's trying to like, I guess, hit 50 before his 16th year or something like that. Um, so anyway, any other thoughts or comments on that? You don't have to say the word if, if it's, you, we just, we all know we're talking about Nyaks here. Yeah. So so the Nyak. Peter always leaning right into it. We gotta love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, I, it's one of the requirements to being king. Like and, you have to have, you have to be good enough of a shot to. And they used apparently as like dart guns. Yeah, um, like a needle almost. It's like yeah, a needle the, yeah, uh, like a needle bullet. I think they call it. Yeah. But like when I read that. I was just like, oh, okay, so this guy is just taking like a fox hunt for the rich and trying to make spaceify it. Yeah, like, it does have that vibe. Yeah, I agree. You know, I think uh, I think we've kind of hit on some key things here. We've got this uh, very traditional um, kingdom structure in Anacreon, and I think you touched on it, Peter. Anacreon was originally a province of the galactic empire and it's split into multiple kingdoms and the planet Anacreon is the center of the Anacreon or the traditional Anacreon province. And they're trying to fight the, the seceding planets or sectors or whatever they are uh, to reclaim them and, and absorb them back into the Anacreonian kingdom. Right. And, um, so yeah, this is a very traditional kind of like, you know, it's it's a very medieval European setting, and I think the fox hunt analogy, you know, folds into that, and the regent Weenus and his, uh, you know, evil uncle. At first, when you know, when I first encountered that character, I was like, oh god, we have the evil uncle thing going on. What a cliche! But it kind of ended like it was necessary, I guess, for the to tell the story. It wasn't as bad as I anticipated when I hit it, but, um, but yeah. yeah. I thought there'd be a little more drama between Leopold and, and Venus, uh, myself, but the, um, yeah, I think you, you hit a good point. It is very medieval. Um, the, uh, especially the part, essentially the Kings derive their power from the religion that's been developed. They have divine, they're semi divine is how they're presented. And therefore 
the kings are like gods to these people. And so they, because of their association with they're the blessed, right? They're yeah, blessed by they're the blessed. priests. They're blessed by the priests and by the, you know, galactic space force or whatever it is, the galactic uh, spirit. And that's their justification for power. That's the divine right of kings in this world. And then everyone is under that. Even even the priests are building up the the king to that point. And then below that are the lowly peasants or whatever. Underlings. Underlings, peons, if you will. But this re- but this religion of science, right? It, it's it's safeguarded by the priests, but they also preach it to the people, right? So the people in general are kind of looking to this religion of science uh, to fill that void that we identified early on. And Peter, you were very, I think, astute in identifying that, you know, where you're saying great space and space forbid and all this stuff, and there's no theism in this, you know, galactic environment that Salver Harden somehow picks up on this gap in, you know, in the environment and fills it with his religion of science that he's pulling the strings in the background. Right. 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 So he's setting the stage for 30 years, building up these priests, sending nuclear power, capable technicians, you know, under the guise of priests out to these planets, building the respect of the people by bringing them power, overcoming their, you know, ancient forms of, of uh, power generation, whatever they were using, burning wood or whatever. They now have this, you know, these glowing priests, they're bringing power. And uh, this is all kind of setting a stage. And Weenus is onto it. Right, Weenus, and and he educates Leopold. That's in, and in another interesting facet is he warns Leopold, like, don't listen to that, you know, viceroy or whatever the the high priest is, who is, uh, you know, supporting Salver Hardin's initiative and getting all people all riled up about this religion of science. He's onto it. He knows it's BS, right? So yeah, so he's clearly he's clearly you know educated his two sons. Leopold is hesitant to go against the priests because he recognizes that some of his power comes from the caste system. So eventually Weenus convinces Leopold that he needs to take over Terminus. So he's, he's pushing him in that invasion direction. And Weenus is... Crafty, but he's not that crafty because Leopold ends the chapter with he was still king and kings could order executions. Of, of fam- yeah, it was like of even uncles. Yeah, of even uncles, right? Because he recognizes that Weenus has two sons. And then, so therefore there's a, uh, a line of secession and very nicely set up for Weenus. Now I've I've got a question to follow up for this. 
Why um, would you name your son Weenus? Well, yeah, that uh, obviously that's the, the big one. But the second one is, is anyone else struggling with all of the peppering of characters in here? I, I think we talked about this early on. It's like I'm trying to figure out everybody's story and the timeline because we're 30 years past the 50-year introduction. But it's like, all right, so we're 80 years now in the, in the future, and it's, you know, the, the five people on the board. I'm just trying to, like, figure out who is an important cog in the wheel and who isn't for, like, brain space because – if we just keep jumping 30 years, 50 years, 20 years, we're going to have new characters constantly. It's like, I can't keep track of who was right. responsible for what. I think I'm just trying to throw it out there for somebody who's reading along and is like also yeah. frustrated by the jumping There's of characters around. Of names, like, and all these people have their own name. Yeah. Like, they're, they're, can't like we just call it? Like, can't everybody just be named Bruce to keep things clear? <laughs> so, yeah. So in any case, I think, Russ, you, you have a good point that we have to kind of clear the slate each time we get down to it and start a new section. But I will say that what it was really struck me, maybe it's taken me a little while to catch up to it, but, you know, as I went back and was flipping through before we, you know, had the discussion today, when you read these little snippets in the beginning of the section, it's actually very foretelling of where things are headed. And it makes a whole lot more sense when you go back and reread it to the point where, you know, in this one, I'll just go through a quick year because it's not that long. The four kingdoms, the name given to those portions of the province of Anacreon, which broke away from the first empire in the early years of the foundational era to form independent and short-lived kingdoms. The largest and most powerful of these was Anacreon itself, which in the in area dot, dot, dot. And then dot, 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 it continues. Undoubtedly, the most interesting aspect of the history of the four kingdoms involves the strange society formed temporarily under it during the administration of Salvor Hardin. So it kind of foretells us that Salvor Hardin will reign over this Anacreonian landscape and under the guise of some strange society that does not last, but is temporarily in existence during his, uh, during his time. So, yeah, super, super reminiscent. Well, I mean, Dune came later, but those little excerpts at the beginning are from Princess Uriolan. Yeah, there's a lot of evidence that Herbert ripped off this series. <laughs> Inspirate. We, want, we like to say inspiration, Peter. He was inspired and by he it. He cribbed. By Isomov. Again, you know, I, I don't think this made it into our, our early cast because we just had like so – we talked for so long for that first episode and we had to kind of carve it down to the salient points. But, you know, well, the, one of the like things – two characters in the first episode. I know, but we just – we talked about them until the, the horse was a bloody pulp. But we talked about that at that time, right? If you go back and you read other stories that were coming out in these magazines at that time, it's, there's like a lot of common topics in the air, right? We know what we're reading in the foundation because it's been collected into a book and it was maybe the most successfully delivered. And uh, it probably deserves a spot as the kind of the top representation of that time. But there were other sci-fi writers that were, you know, it was like, 
prolific writing in this genre and from short stories all the way up to novels. And they touch on a lot of these same concepts. And even the link that you sent out, Peter, to uh, echo your um, comment about the interregnum was basically pointing to kind of a standard formula for sci-fi epics that basically walks through the destruction and rebuilding of humanity um, to some kind of higher, higher outcome or, or improved humanity at the end of the process. Right. It's this kind of recipe for these epic stories. I think that it touches on a deeper kind of human romance of like lost knowledge or like resurrecting some kind of ancient truth from the past too. And just put into a kind of more literal circumstance of we had this knowledge and we lost it. And now we're trying to pick up the pieces or deconstruct this technology we discovered to, and maybe not make the same mistakes that led to the destruction of that golden age. So, yeah, I think this is like, you know, what, what strikes me is that, you know, you guys are, are leaning on, you know, the fall of Rome and, you know, this replication of this kind of historic event in the, you know, in the distant future. And maybe it's like a, a gloomy scenario, like we're destined to repeat this cycle of bloating, decadence, stagnation, destruction, rebirth from, you know, the the burnt field with fresh shoots and new minds and new eyes and new ideas. And we rebuild all these things back up again. And then we bloat, stagnate, uh, you know, and, and go through the same cycle again. But what strikes me is that, and I had this feeling a lot when I was reading Dune is like, if I put myself, if I think of myself today, not as having lost the information from yesteryear, but if I put myself in today as, you know, part of the yesteryear of tomorrow, you know, there's a lot to be kind of um, happy about, I guess, not to get all weird and squishy on you guys, but like, there's a lot of cool stuff today that we get to experience that, you know, years from now, it's not going to be part of culture. It's not going to be part of life. It's not going to be the same technology. Look at our kids, right? You know, they, they're whipping my daughter, you know, a few years on the earth and she's whipping around these Kindle, you know, uh, tablets and iPads and iPhones and games. Like she's doing stuff that wasn't even a, didn't even exist when I was a kid. Right. So their whole perspective of the world is going to be totally different. So like while we're here, we're getting this experience of things that, you know, people who come after us will never have that experience again. Right. So. Right. It wasn't that far ago, long ago when we were like horse and buggy. And it wasn't automobiles. It was a hundred years ago. Right. It was now we have world ending nuclear technology. Yeah. It's like 1910, 1911. Henry Ford really starts putting out the. The model, what is it? The Model A or the Model T? Yeah. Model A, uh, Model T. Yeah. So I mean, in like a hundred years, we've gone from candles 
and horse and buggy. Yeah, like whale oil. To space flight, air travel, um, motor vehicles. Cancer, cancer treatments. Right. Radiation treatments. Um, gene and we manipulation. Did it with human sacrifice, which is really amazing to me. That's been documented, right? Wait, what'd you say? I said we've we've done it with minimal human sacrifice. Oh, yeah, which is the most amazing <laughs> thing to me because you know the altars are dry, guys. It's not. But we are still okay. obsessed with the pyramids, right? And we're still obsessed with that concrete formula that we still can't quite get right. That the Romans managed to through their craftsmen and a whole, you know, guild of of concrete whatever concretists or whatever they were called back in the day masons masons thank you thank you peter you know they managed to develop this like super resilient concrete that we just haven't been able to replicate and so there there are always these things that are special about history and yeah it's uh, just put more context even just having this conversation on over the course of 80 years they've gone from a nuclear powered human civilization that spans the galaxy backwards to wood burning, fossil fuel burning power plants. Feudalist society. And now they've they've believed that people who harness the power of science are actually mystical priests, right? Right. Are like divine entities. Yeah. Now if we'd gone back a hundred years, right, and show and and flown an airplane, right, maybe we would get that cargo cult thing from the people of the nineteen hundreds, right? Definitely. Definitely. But yeah, it's it, it's it's hard to peg you know, what's the right time duration for that kind of evolution to happen in culture. But so I think we should kind of conclude here at the end of chapter five. We're about halfway through, right? This and, section, uh, you mean, or right, you mean the book? About halfway. Well, we're both. You know, we're almost halfway yeah, through both, at the right? end of part three when we get there when we read it. But we're about halfway through the section part three. Yep. Um, Things are starting to come to a head, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you want to kind of summarize? Happy to. Take us home, Peter. We end up with Harden barely getting away with not being kicked out of office due to some kind of emergency vote from the actionists. His margin is much slimmer than he thought it would be. It's about 20 votes. I think he was counting on maybe 60 votes. Anacreon has their starship, their newly refurbished battlecruiser from the Imperium. They're maneuvering, and Harden can see it. And after his narrow escape, he decides to leave for Anacreon, which is exactly what he said he would do. He knows that he needs to be on Anacreon for the crisis, for whatever reason. And did we mention that this was predicted that these two crises would, I feel like we did there. Yeah. I was going to say, I feel like I missed we, a big focus was that there were two crises that would be coming together. Yeah. And so there, the, it's interesting because in chapter, I guess chapter two of book three, Harden goes into his whole theory about what is going to happen. And I, I didn't really get a good grasp of this is, explicitly explained by Harry Seldon during his vault reveal uh, after book two, the way that the predictive nature of the formula works for the psycho historians 
is essentially that history will narrow to a point where choice ceases to exist and you will either get past that crisis or you will not. And when you still have choices, uh, Harden reasons that they are not at the crisis yet. Mm. He still has options. And so he's essentially trying to extend out the clock as long as possible so that these internal and external pressures can develop to a point where the crisis happens and then they can get to the next point where they're going to enter some kind of new phase. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of where we're left by the end of this, this, uh, chapter five is that we know that the crisis is about to happen because Harden leaves for Anacreon, which is exactly what he said he would do in chapter two. All right, everybody. So we are headed towards a crisis Tune in next week for the final part of The Mayors, where we talk about chapter six through nine. I have been your host, Jason, with my co-hosts, Peter and Russ. And we'll talk to you next time. Have a good night, everybody. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a good good night. night.